We are ready to start a new era of pro football. It's the premiere of the Alliance on CBS as the Orlando Apollos host the Atlanta Legends at Spectrum Stadium here in Orlando, Florida. And hi, everyone. Welcome to Orlando with 13-year NFL veteran Gary Danielson. I'm Andrew Catalan. Melanie Collins will join us coming up. And Gary, you're no stranger to new football leagues. Got your football card got here. There? The 1974 World Football League, the New York Stars. Gary has a mustache <laughs> in this picture. Fast forward to tonight, what are your expectations for the Alliance? You know, I think when people watch the game, and I went to San Antonio and watched the preseason games, we've been around here, I think they're going to say, wow, these guys aren't good enough to play in the league. Well, most of them are, but they weren't in the right place at the right time, and a league has come along to give them another shot. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Good golly, Miss Molly. I can't believe that we're actually doing this episode this week. Hi there, friends. My name is Tim Hanlon, and this is Good Seat Still Available, our curious little podcast, our journey, our exploration, our investigation each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. And I, I can't tell you, that I would have even envisioned doing an episode on the Alliance of American Football so soon, given at the beginning of this year, everybody, by all indications, would have thought that this was uh, built to last at least for one season, for God's sakes. But no, alas, it uh, it has fallen uh, into disarray uh, and uh, and bankruptcy and so soon after launching. And uh, we're uh, we're going to get into it with our guest this week, Connor Orr from Sports Illustrated, who's written. Uh, probably the two best pieces about this uh, league that uh, came and went so very quickly. And, and obviously, this is the beginning of what will be a uh, a long time investigation into uh, what went wrong. And frankly, some some of the things that went right uh, with the uh, the Alliance of American Football and the articles that I uh, commend to you to read uh, either online or in printed form. If you could find a copy of Sports Illustrated. The uh, April 30th and the uh, May 8th issues of Sports Illustrated, or you can go online to si.com and uh, search up these articles. It's the curious rise and spectacular crash of the Alliance of American Football. And part two uh, is called More Strange Tales from the Collapse of the AAF. And Connor Orr, the writer of both pieces, is uh, the guest this week to, to kind of get into some of it. We're only going to scratch the surface, but it is the beginning uh, of, of what will likely be a very interesting uh, series of, of stories to unfold uh, in the uh, months and maybe even years to come uh, about what happened, what the hell went wrong with this thing called the Alliance of American Football. It's a story of of Charlie Ebersol, the son of, of television production legend uh, Dick Ebersol and NBC Sports uh, chairman emeritus, the guy, uh, Dick, who with Vince McMahon put together the XFL back in 2001 a spectacular event and and ultimately failure back then. And, and Charlie having done a, a documentary about the rise and fall of that league and getting real close to the subject matter at hand and, and figuring out that uh, perhaps that he might have a better shot at trying to do a springtime football league, uh, perhaps uh, better, more well thought out, maybe with a vision towards where uh, technology in the future uh, of football, maybe even a hint of, of how gambling might evolve over time. 
all good things, all good ideas. Some investors uh, from uh, supposedly solid backgrounds, all part of this mix and part of this adventure and this journey. Uh, but as you heard somewhat ominously <laughs> in the beginning of this little show, do you dare reference the World Football League in your first broadcast? Well, I guess that's what Andrew and uh, and Gary Danielson did. Uh, and, 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 you know, I, I guess they didn't think that this was going to sort of uh, besmirch them. But uh, indeed, it didn't even last as long as the first year of the World Football League, for God's sakes, if you can believe that. But that's the topic that we're going to get into to at least start our journey into the Alliance of American football with our guest Connor Orr. And boy, oh boy, lots of characters and lots of little intrigues in this investigation. And uh, we encourage you to give a listen to this conversation with Connor just coming up in a couple of moments. Fascinating is uh, an understatement. And uh, we're going to get to it uh, in just a couple of seconds. But uh, before we do so, I want to get into our uh, our promotional banter, shall we, with one of our great sponsors. Uh, and this week, we uh, spin the dial to our friends at Streaker Sports Yes, you can find them at streakersports.com. Yep, they are the purveyor of sports culture. It is a trove of fun stuff that they've got in t-shirts and uh, active wear, uh, polo shirts and caps and all kinds of cool stuff, shorts even, all kinds of great stuff. And there's lots of sports and lots of uh, products that they, they've got out there. But as you know, we like to obviously highlight things that are relatively close to our little neck of the woods. And that's, of course, anything in the realm of defunct leagues. And yep, if you go to the special collections section of streakersports.com and go to that special collections tab and you want to go down to the defunct league section, well, my goodness, you're going to find great T-shirts uh, in remembrance of a whole bunch of leagues, maybe the AAF at some point. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nod, nod. But uh, while we wait for <laughs> for T-shirts and other remembrances of the old, now old Alliance of American Football. Why don't you take a look at what Streaker Sports has for you in the in the realm of the ABA, the American Basketball Association, or the USFL? Yep, there you go. A forgotten sports football league that tried to make a go of it uh, in the spring. Uh, the World Hockey Association, some great stuff there at streakersports.com and interestingly in the realm of the original indoor well one of the original indoor lacrosse leagues the major indoor lacrosse league all those four leagues uh and many many other things there too will uh just delight you and perhaps even entice you to make a purchase or two uh, at streakersports.com really cool stuff from all four of those leagues and uh, once you find something that you love and i'm pretty certain you're going to find something that you love Make sure that you use the promo code good seats, will you? Promo code good seats. Yep, they put that, enter that in at checkout, and you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases at streakersports.com. Some really great stuff there. Uh, college lacrosse, uh, they've got a, a Caddyshack collection there. Uh, they've got an homage to uh, the Mighty Ducks, as well as, as I said, all those defunct leagues that we just mentioned, uh, and many, many more things for you to enjoy and check out at streakersports.com. Dot com. Make sure you use that promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. No AAF stuff yet, but uh, we can we can hope and keep our fingers crossed. Goodness knows that the logos uh, of the teams and the uh, the emblems and the, the the names of the teams themselves, pretty well thought out, I thought, and uh, well designed. And uh, I'm hopeful that Streaker Sports will take advantage of uh, offering some of those uh, great logos on shirts and stuff from the AAF in the uh, months to come. Let's keep our fingers crossed. But in the interim, 
to keep you uh, interested in the topic at hand, here is our conversation that we had literally just a couple of days ago with Connor Orr from Sports Illustrated. And let's get into it. The Alliance of American Football. Fascinating conversation coming right at you. This little show uh, for the last, I don't know, two years or so, we've been focused on, you know, teams and leagues uh, no longer with us, lots of defunctness or uh, bolting for other cities, a weird fascination. Uh, and by the way, you know, it goes back dozens of years into, you know, the earliest days of baseball once you get down to it. But um, I got to tell you, there are uh, enough of our listeners who are just uh, fascinated, as I guess I am, with, you know, it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't take too much time for uh People don't want to wait for the body to be, uh, you know, to be fully cold yet uh, no. <laughs> before they can put, go into it. So uh, maybe uh, you could give our audience a little bit of a sense of, uh, of who you are, uh, an SI guy. Did you have to draw straws for this story or was this something that you kind of just leapt into to, to do yourself because of it's just, uh, I don't know, a, amazing flame out quality and perhaps uh, it seems like a, a, a well-oiled story ready to go? Yeah, so I, I got really lucky because I had been kind of covering the alliance a little bit um, since its launch. And what I've been telling a lot of other people is it was a goldmine for football reporters because they were desperate for access and they had, you know, access to great football people. And so, like, you know, if you need to talk to Mike Martz for a story or, you know, Dennis Erickson or Steve Spurrier or Trent Richardson, you know, all these guys were available, you know, five days a week. Their PR people were eager to put them on the phones. And so that's kind of what got me into paying attention to the Alliance because I was like, okay, great. You know, if not nothing else, you know, people that can help me with stories, people that can help me, you know, round out other features that I was working on um, at the time. And then, you know, the day that the league closed down, I remember, you know, it was April 2nd, um, I just thought, okay, you know, I got, I had gotten a tip probably about half an hour earlier from uh, uh, somebody else who had been observing the league from afar, but knew that I'd been covering it and, and said, hey, you know, you should, you should probably start paying attention to this. There's some stuff going on here. Um, and then from that moment on, um, you know, uh, reporting it out that day, um, talking to some of the contacts that I have in the league, I was like, wow, this is uh, this is going to be a pretty amazing story, you know. And luckily, my bosses were behind it all the way and said, let's let's do this. Yeah, we're we're recording this in the second week of May, so this is this is a literally a first sort of post mortem take on on a story that uh, I'm sure will have uh, plenty more uh, twists and turns to go. But but it sounds like that this was almost sort of like a you were developing almost a beat for yourself uh, at the in the early days uh, with this league. Is that right? A little bit, yeah. I mean, you know, certainly, you know, being part of the Monday morning quarterback section of SI, you know, we're all professional football all the time. But um, I love the idea of of a developmental league. You know, I think that um, there will one day be a sustainable developmental league, and maybe that's the XFL. Um, you know, I think that we're not far away from seeing juniors and seniors who are physically mature enough in college that will go take the $250,000 paycheck and play professionally for two years until they're ready to get into the NFL. You know, I think all that is is coming. We're really close to that. And so I think it's just a, a really interesting supplement, right? Because when we go to the combine every year to talk to coaches and uh, scouts and general managers, I mean, now we're running into XFL people. We're running into Alliance people. We're running into all the, the guys that are in this orbit 
Um, and so I, I, I think you can't ignore it, even if, uh, you know, I, I would – I would consider myself, I guess, a pretty just standard traditional NFL reporter. Well, right, well let's just start sort of, I guess, from the beginning, I guess, in terms of, of the, the arc of this story, right? Because like a lot of people, uh, we were all fascinated a couple of years ago uh, with, uh, and I, I, I'll speak for myself, I'm a documentary freak, and, and when it gets into sports and sports history, even doubly so. And the, the, uh, the, the doc that, uh, that Charlie Ebersole uh, son of uh, legendary uh, television and sports executive at NBC Sports, Dick Ebersol, put together on the the story of the original XFL, which for you youngins out there, right, was the one-year wonder, shall we say, uh, its own amazing story and made for f- tremendous documentary fodder between uh, Dick Ebersol and, of course, Vince McMahon, aforementioned, who ironically is bringing back this XFL thing in a, in a newer form next year. But my sense is that, uh, number one, here you have a, shall we say, budding documentarian, uh, you know, the apple falling proverbially not too far from the tree, I guess. But then, two, also kind of, uh, you know, I guess sort of uh, getting a sense or at least a some level of confidence that, hey, this football thing maybe could have been done better. Uh, and my investigation of the, of the story of how the first go around didn't work, it almost seems to me like. There was maybe, I don't know, an irrational exuberance about Charlie's possible opportunity to maybe do it himself the second time around. Is that rooted in, in reality or, or is that just too early or facile a, a comment at this point? No, I think that there was certainly an exuberance there. And then, you know, I think what really got it off the ground is if you combine that, um, that personal energy with what's going on right now. Um, in Silicon Valley, um, what's going on in the sports technology world, um, what's going on in the sports television world. You know, I think it was a perfect storm to kind of hit Charlie specifically because you have this young, you know, good-looking entrepreneurial guy, um, likes to do things differently, aggressively. I mean, you know, his name in the reality TV circuit, um, beyond that documentary that he produced, is, is fairly well known. I think the Hollywood Reporter listed him as one of the 30 biggest power players in, in that industry. And so, you know, for somebody who thinks like that, um, and then somebody who has a lot of these high-profile people in his ear, whether it was, you know, um, early on they were associated with Peter Thiel and the Founders Fund and, and Chernin and the Barstool Group and all that stuff, you know, you start hearing stuff uh, like that. You start thinking like a, like a tech pioneer, um, and then you get hooked up with guys like Eric Schwartz uh, from Yahoo and people from Tesla and Lockheed Martin, and all of a sudden, you know, you're full bore on this. You know, you have uh, you have your sales out, and you're uh, you're ready to start a professional football league that doubles as a tech company. Well, and that but that said, though, I, you know, for those who have been you know involved uh, in the sort of tech startup space, I, I actually professionally day job uh, have been with uh, in the media and advertising uh, technology space. You know, there's also a hefty dollop of oh, I don't know, lemming uh, like following and belief and or not wanting to be the guy or the person to maybe miss out on the next big thing and yet not necessarily uh, vetting everything out uh, per se or or assuming that other people along the line or in the process or in the uh, in the investment pool have it all figured out and they don't want to look stupid by comparison. 
I think that's a great way to put it. Um, you know, someone, uh, you know, else in the business that wasn't associated with Alliance told me that, you know, where we are in sports tech is, is pre-Wild West. We're not even Wild West yet. Um, and so you combine that landscape with what you're talking about, this developing sort of, you know, pirate mentality, you know, all these kind of high-profile gamblers, whether it was the, you know, Theranos people or the Firefest people or, you know, any of these people that have this idea that we can do something extraordinarily big and we don't really have to plan it out because we're going to pinball along and figure it out like Facebook and Uber and Apple and all these other things. You know, it, it, it's such a prevalent mentality, and that's the fuel behind the fire. You know, everybody that I had talked to for this story – there are a lot of people that I'd talked to um, that were on board with the initial vision where, yeah, I mean, we expected this to be hard. We expected to run out of money. We expected this to be crazy. But, you know, I think that only gets you so far if only a very small portion of your overall company expects things to work that way. Well, in the first of your two articles, and I'm assuming you've got more stuff to come, no, besides these first two? I think so, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so the curious rise and spectacular crash of the Alliance of American Football, which is the first article, you'll find that on SI.com and the second article, which is even more strange tales from such. Uh, and I'm sure it's the beginning of, dare I say, perhaps a book or something. I'm sure you've got a book in you at some point. It's very interesting that the thesis of your, your article, the, at least the first one, uh, very much kind of starts out with the idea that this is almost a like very much a a tech startup uh, in in look and in feel and and perhaps and even in terms of the the cast of characters and the assumptions monetarily than it was a football league per se. A hundred percent, and and that's where I feel like their biggest failure was. Right was. Um, you know, and, and this goes back to, you know, something that I wish, um, you know, and if there does end up being a book here, I think I can explore a little bit more is that, you know, the NFL uh, has been trying to integrate tech for years. And uh, it's, it's, it's an extraordinarily difficult thing because there's this mountain of really useful data. Um, but there's no one around to kind of explain it or translate it for the football people so it makes sense to them. And so, it, you know, like they always want to know, well, well, what can I do with this or, or, or why do I need this? And so I think it was fascinating that Charlie really tried to microwave the progress in that sense and say, okay, you know what, not only am I going to start this thing with a tech backing, but I'm going to I'm going to throw Steve Spurrier in a room here with people from Tesla and Lockheed Martin, and I'm going to make them try to speak the same language and explain things to each other. And so I think that that was extraordinarily difficult, you know, combined with the fact that, you know, you have employees in 30 states in three uh, office locate three rented office locations, um, no centralized business model. Everything's being done over text message and email and conference call. Uh, I mean, it, you know, there were people outside of the business at that point looking in and saying, I don't think they're going to make it two months. And, you know, I guess that they, they ended up being right. Well, there are two things that strike me with that sort of thesis. Number one is that, you know, many tech startups, um, especially these days, as things have, have gotten more, shall we say, mature, you know, there's this uh, uh, raise as much money as you can, uh, you know, damn the, the profits, but get the scale and the traction uh, so that uh, good things uh, on a bigger stage can happen, whether that's going public or whatever. You know, but profits in the near term are not necessarily the issue. A lot of it is cash burn and establishing credibility, uh, a, a minimal or, or and then some viable product. 
So that's number one. So that, that sort of brings up the cash issue. But number two, that sounds, and I think you're hinting at it, uh, and we'll get maybe into some of the, the characters of this in a second. That sounds extremely different than the idea of playing professional football, right? Which is a whole sort of different sensibility and and dynamic uh, than, you know, raising a, a round of growth capital to conquer the world. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a great point. Um, I, I think it's, it, you know, the cast of characters here, and I mean, there were 952 employees. Um, so you have to think about it that way. Um, the cast of characters here could not have been more different, right? Because you were calling from the tech startup world. So maybe there were um, advertisers, marketing reps, you know, people in charge of public relations that have worked at tech companies. And then there were people in that same aspect who came from the NFL. And, you know, uh, there would be meetings, you know, as people would describe them to me, where, uh, you know, one side would be talking and the other side would be like, well, that's not how we do things at all. I mean, that's not right. That's that's not how we're supposed to do this. And so just the just the culture itself, I mean, you know, Charlie had always tried to push, you know, at least according to the employees, is, you know, this culture first startup and we were going to be built around this culture. But I think it was so difficult on a large scale. You know, I think that the teams were good and, and a lot of the team stuff was harmonious because football people are football people at the end of the day. But you're talking about a, a real clash of styles, of approaches to things. And, you know, I, I 100% think that that impacted stuff from day one. Isn't that, though, why Bill Pollian was the, was kind of brought in at the earliest stage? It almost seemed to me, at least certainly that initial game on CBS, right? It seems like they were, uh, you know, being touted as almost joined at the hip. You know, one was yin and one was yang. Uh, you know, one sort of the tech entrepreneur, reality TV guy, you know, ideal driven. And then, you know, Bill Pollian's more the, you know, the nuts and bolts guy who, you know, no, walks and talks football and and puts all the. Uh, actual pieces of, of of an actual league together is is that a fair or facile assessment? Yeah, no. It, it, he was he was lending legitimacy to the operation, right? He was the guy that because without him, you weren't going to be able to call Mike Martz or Steve Spurrier or Dennis Erickson or um, Brad Childress at the beginning before um, he left and, and say, hey, you know, um, stake your reputation on this. Uh, here's a three year deal. Um, these are good people. You know, this was this. He was sort of the the gatekeeper for all this. And while you know, in the stories, he kind of ended up playing sort of a surprisingly smaller role than I had expected. You know, he was certainly out front at the beginning, um, providing that football legitimacy, which is huge. I mean, you know, you look at all these. I think we're there's now four more professional leagues starting up now in the next two years between um, the league that Don Yee, the Tom Brady's agent, has out in the West Coast, the XFL. Um, there's one that, uh, like Richard Sherman and the Bennetts are involved in that's going to be coming out in the next few years. You know, all this stuff needs legitimacy. It needs somebody to get the professional names, the big guys, to come down and to stake their reputation on this. And so that's where Bill came in handy. And that's why I think even right after the league folded, he he came out kind of guns blazing because this was his reputation, and I think he took it really seriously and he took it really hard when uh, when the league folded after eight weeks. So okay, for even before all this on, and the money and the investment and, and the specific situation of this league, right? Which I, you know on paper makes a lot of sense. Right? You're talking, you're making a lot of sense when you when you 
you know, talk about a feeder league and an alternative to the one and done and in the or you know or you know the the, the sham, frankly, that NCAA football and basketball, for that matter, is becoming relative vis-a-vis the pros. But it, look, the, the the whole you know of any sport professionally in this country, right, that has gone through you know challenges and and has uh, percentage-wise failed more often than not in challenging established leagues, in particular the NFL, it's been pro football, right? I mean, probably twice as many leagues have come and gone in the realm of professional football probably than any other sport. Uh, And yet you have football people, I guess, maybe this time with the more tech-oriented siren song that that are, are seemingly just willing to step up and take yet another shot despite that history. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the one thing that you can't underestimate is how many people are orbiting in this professional football economy and how few jobs there actually are um, in the NFL. And that's what the Alliance was hoping to exploit a little bit because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there are only 32 head coaches and and so many position coaches and scouts and and everything on down. And there are people that probably feel like either uh, on either end of the spectrum that they were pushed out because they were too old, that they still had some good years left in them, or it was someone like a, like a Cliff Kingsbury or a young Sean McVay that, that even before their first NFL shot, that's looking at trying to kind of microwave their career. And, And the same goes for the players as well. I mean, you know, I think that there's never a shortage of that. And so if you're looking at it from a purely labor perspective, if you're Charlie or you're anybody else at the top of this league, you're thinking, oh yeah, I mean, you know, these games are going to be on CBS or, or TNT or any of these things. And people are so desperate to just remain part of this orbit that um, we're never going to be at a shortage of employees. And I think that that was one of the things that they were sort of cavalier about early on is, you know, uh, we, we could be selective even to a point of, of who we want to work in this league. Well, all right, but uh, you could also make that argument that that might have been a little bit more alluring had Vince McMahon not decided to reboot the XFL himself. Um, maybe maybe you could talk a minute or two about sort of maybe the origin of uh, the AAAF with respect to the XFL, because it sounds to me, and I think some of this was in your reporting, and, and I think I've read it elsewhere as well. Uh, do I have this right that, that, that Ebersol, Charlie, that is, essentially approached McMahon with the idea of either rebooting the XFL or taking another shot with, you know, maybe tech sort of as the base of it and and then was rebuffed and hence the AAF's creation? Or again, is that too easy or maybe not the full story? I don't think that's the full story. I mean, for at least from what I understand, and this is, you know, talking to people close to, to Charlie, is that his relationship with Vince w- was always pretty good and I think remained good. Um, you know, even after um, Dick and Vince and the initial XFL kind of fell apart, I think that, you know, Charlie really, um, you know, felt close to Vince um, and, and felt like it was something that, um, you know, uh, I, I don't think that there was an adversarial relationship necessarily there. Um, the, the part about him initially approaching Vince, uh, you know, didn't surface in, in my reporting in particular, but I did get the sense that, um you know, and maybe this was just, you know, uh, private conversations or sort of this in-house feel that, like, if the alliance got out first and if they got, you know, if they had maintained that energy that they had, that they had kind of gotten through that first week of the season, that they might be able to just maybe even knock the XFL off the lanes or to force the XFL to be a competitive fall league or to do something else to sort of get them out of their 
um, to get them out of their path because I think that that was the big motivator was to uh, was to come out strong, to come out first, and uh, to solidify the product before the XFL got on the field. And so, you know, perhaps that was the case. I mean, maybe the, there was a desire to work with Vince initially. I mean, sure, certainly the funding would have been attractive there. I mean, Vince is passionate and can float the league indefinitely because of the money that he's made from World Wrestling Entertainment. But, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely got the sense that uh, regardless of his initial motivations, the XFL was always in their rearview mirror or, you know, I guess they could see them coming up ahead. Whatever it was, whatever analogy you want to use, uh, was certainly a major part of some of the decisions that they were making. Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering, and I'm sure this will play out as uh, as the oral history uh, com- continues to unfold. And obviously, we'll try to keep doing that uh, in the months ahead on this little silly show. Who, who sort of had the idea and or, you know, the the timing of sort of all that this first, right? Because there was that period of time when... You know, the AAF was announced and the XFL was announced. I, I frankly don't remember the, the time frame, but, you know, here it was. You went from zero spring leagues to two. Uh, and again, I've seen some some parallels in, in other sports and in our ex- exploration of other pro sports. But it seems to me in that rush, right, which seems like a noble idea. And, and if you're taking more of sort of that tech startup mentality, as we alluded to earlier, right, the idea of. Getting to the market first, right? Uh, you're investing money uh, with profits be damned, right? Which, again, is the tech mantra. Doesn't sound illogical in that framing. Um, but it does seem to me that, um, shall we say, compromises might have been made in terms of uh, seeking that original funding. And, and in particular, this Reggie Fowler character who seems to have been a an interesting tipping point to maybe all of these cards falling apart later on. Yeah, I mean, there are still people, um, uh, well, before I get to Reggie, I, I will say that to your point, too, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, if you try to think about it from Charlie's perspective, you know, people are painting the XFL right now as um, more stable and, you know, having learned all these lessons and, you know, they'll be on, on a right path. But if you think about the, the climate, um, you know, I, I think their, their launch announcements are probably like an, a month or two apart, but... The XFL's initial press conference, the relaunch press conference with Vince McMahon, was very bizarre. It was very strange. It was full of this sort of um, Trump rhetoric, um, you know, uh, we're going to force everybody to stand for the national anthem. Uh, we're going to not, um, uh, we're not going to sign any players with a criminal background, you know, very much sort of, uh, an homage to, Hey, everybody who was disillusioned, uh, during Kaepernick, this is, this is your football league. We're the, we're the make America great again, football league. And so I think that before they got like Oliver Luck involved and, you know, before he came in to sort of straighten things out as their commissioner, there was maybe the sense that like, okay, this might not long at all. This is very strange. Um, you know, as soon as this sort of national sentiment sort of dissipates, and we saw that with the NFL this past year where, you know, the ratings came back strong and, and fan sentiment seems to be back at, at level that maybe this wasn't going to work at all, right? I mean, you know, I, I don't I don't know if, uh, if anybody was going to flock to uh, to something like that. But yeah, I mean, all of a sudden you're trying to be first to market. Uh, you're talking to NFL people um, people in the sports billionaire realm, um, and there's not that many, right? I mean, it's a shallow pool, and so Reggie Fowler's name surfaced a bunch of times. You know, from my understanding, he had come to the alliance as, you know, kind of a guy with a rehabilitated image. He was a minority owner of the Vikings, but had had a lot of legal trouble and funding trouble at that point. But, um, 
Yeah, you know, at some point in, I think it was about June of, of 2018, so, um, you know, we're, yeah, we're still about six months from launch, you know, that this is when their initial kind of discussions, their fundraising was involved, and, you know, he's sitting down with uh, Charlie and, and this this initial team of, of Alliance of American Football people and saying, hey, this is great, um, you know, I got $170 million that I'm prepared to spend on you guys, that'll get you through your first year, we'll kind of float it week by week and, and give it to you in this time, but I'm happy to say sign a contract and here is all my bank accounts in different parts of the country and different parts of the world and the, here's all the proof that I have this money. But wasn't also Tom Dundon also part of this initial conversation as well and, and Tom obviously a bigger character later on in the end of the the, the short life of this league but I, I got to think that he and, and a bunch of others were also approached at the time some saying yes and probably a lot more like like Dundon kind of saying thanks but we'll wait and see or or not not right now yeah I think it was a lot more hey let's see how this plays out right um you know let's see let's see how it goes because the appeal with with Reggie Fowler was that he did not like other people have the desire to be the sole um investor the controlling investor right and so the strategy was okay let's get somebody on board to get us to launch, right? And then once we get into space, um, everyone's going to see how cool this is, and we're going to do a second round of fundraising and a third round of fundraising, and then we're really going to, uh, you know, attract investors. We're going to, you know, and then that's where the pipe dreams start. In three years, we could take this public as a tech IPO. We could start selling these franchises off, um, like, you know, like a like a popular sushi chain or so, or something like that. You know, and so um, that's where all these kind of grand visions started. And with Fowler, really, what they were looking at is okay. He's the guy that he's the initial fuel to get us to launch. And then once we're off the ground, everything will be fine. All right, we're going to take a quick, brief pause, and we want to remind you that our friends at Audible are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download courtesy of us and Audible. And uh, it's something you can cancel at any time, and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, two great books on the great Julia Serving that might be worth using your credit for. One, of course, is The Rise and Rise of Julia Serving. It's called Doc, and it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cremet. You could use your credit for that book. And it's a great sort of interview style background on the uh, life and times of Dr. J from all sides. But if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, the autobiography, of course. It's written by Dr. J in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld. And it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julius Irving. And uh, you could use your credit for that book, as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books, not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres 
and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free for God's sakes. Audibletrial.com slash good seats. Yes, audibletrial.com slash good seats. That's the link. And that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy in perpetuity for as long as your device lives, uh, the downloaded book free and gratis, courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seats Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you joining our conversation once again. So in your reporting, when, you know, it seems to me that uh, the football side of it, right, it obviously attracted uh, quite a few well-regarded coaches and administrators. Uh, it certainly got the attention of players. It seems to me that that at least that part of the, the marketing spiel was working, right? People felt that it was legitimate enough and solid enough to pursue, if, especially if I was a player or, uh, or a coach or, or some other aspect of, of managing uh, a team and actually playing the actual game of football. Yeah, and and that was never a problem because if you think about the you know how all this works, right? You know, the, one of the players that we talked to um, talked about in this story was Adrian Robinson, former fourth round pick of the Giants, and just thinking about you know how this whole chain works, right? I mean, he's sitting there, he hears about the league. Of course, you call your agent, and of course, the agent's interested, and he's going to push you no matter what because he wants his. Three percent of your two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars, and of course the trainer's going to want you because he wants uh, he wants the cut and he wants clients and he wants NFL bodies in his training facility and you know all of a sudden you get all this revved up again um, and you're you're providing opportunities not only for the player but everyone in that orbit whether it was you know agents trainers you know personnel guys, you know, accountants, money managers, like all these people that get deactivated when these players aren't playing anymore and all of a sudden they get to come back to life or they get to add another client or add another couple thousand bucks to their, uh, um, you know, to their bank account. And so I think that anytime you can spark that kind of, put that initial spark out there, you're going to get people forcing players in droves to these leagues. And, you know, I think the same a little bit can be said about personnel people, especially guys who still need to make some money, um, especially guys that were a few years from retirement maybe and uh, and miss that, that NFL lifestyle and that NFL paycheck. You know, it's, it's very attractive when uh, when you're throwing around money like that. Well, but in, in, in the summer of 2018, though, there's some very uh, straightforward combines. And, and you know, I, I also you maybe wonder, you know, some of the the initial salaries that were sort of thrown out there. I mean, three years guaranteed at two fifty a year, or sorry, a total of two hundred fifty thousand. I mean, yeah, with performance bonuses and, and and all those kinds of things. I mean, it seems. I don't know if I'm if I'm a player that's been you know sort of on the the treadmill of of NFL tryouts and hasn't sort of you know maybe played some arena games and still looking for that last shot. I mean, it almost. I don't want to say it sounds too good to be true, but. I don't know. It, it might it have been. Maybe I, I, the answer is probably obvious now. But I mean, that's an attractive amount of money and uh, a su- certain level of security, I guess, for players who maybe are not going to be stars. But that's you know, you can survive on that and play the game that you you love. Yeah, I mean, it was more than attractive, and you know, uh, part of the reason why is you know th- this was launched with like very 
egalitarian ideas, uh, you know, specifically focused at the player, right? So you had two two of their initial investors were Justin Tuck and uh, and Jared Allen, who um, locker room leaders, um, you know, definitely uh, guys that were well respected in the league. I mean, you bring in Heinz Ward, Troy Polamalu, all these people that had a tremendous uh, amount of equity um, with current and former players. And then you're you're saying not only are we going to give you two hundred fifty thousand dollars over three years, but if you're a quarterback or a wide receiver or a face of the franchise type, we're going to have um, incentives not only for scoring but for community appearance, media interviews, where you're going to be able to double that, right? So you're going to make five hundred thousand dollars in three years, which for an out of work football player is an unbelievable life changing amount of money. You know, Certainly. there were guys that moved families down there. You know, I heard stories that, you know, the players at the, whatever, the Marriott, the courtyard in Arizona, and there were cribs, you know, there were full families in these hotel rooms. And, you know, this was a gold rush for people. They really thought that this was going to be a life-changing opportunity. Yeah. And I guess to the outside observer, right, it seemed like things were, were at least on the football side, seeming to come together, right? You had, you had uh, eight markets chosen, which seemed to be you know, fairly well thought out. Uh, maybe you could speak to that for a second. I mean, not not trying to sort of sit in NFL uh, cities as an alternative, but literally, for the most part, sort of in these uh, oft sought after football hungry markets, right, that, you know, maybe had very little competition, especially during the spring uh, with other sports. And, you know, the logos and the uh, uh, the team names and uh, just the whole sort of uh, graphic identity, all that stuff seemed to be pretty top-notch and pretty professional uh, from an outsider's perspective, no? <laughs> yeah, yes and no. So I think that some of the, some of the locations uh, were brilliant, right? San Antonio um, is a football-starved market, and that was a place that was absolutely heartbroken when the alliance cl- closed down. That was uh, a profitable market for them. Um, it was very easy for them to sell tickets there. They loved the San Antonio market. And then you had places like Salt Lake, which were so bad um, that, you know, they were looking at moving the franchise at the end of the year and they were courting other markets like Detroit and, you know, they were kind of hoping to get get off the ground somewhere else. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, it was funny because, uh, you know, people have said to me, oh, well, the cosmetic aspect of it was always there. You know, it was kind of like a Hollywood movie set where they had everything uh, dressed up to a point. And that's true uh, to a point. But then, you know, it's also funny, like these little details that you pick up along the way where, you know, I was talking to someone in uh, in the advertising realm that said, you know, we talked to them about a Super Bowl commercial, and this is January um, of, or, you know, December of 2018, two months to launch, and there are uniforms that aren't done yet. And so there are certain teams that we can't put in the commercial because, uh, you know, all the stuff isn't done yet. And, the, you know, so it's funny to me that, like, yes, I mean, some of this stuff was really well thought out, but then, like, just the other side of that, like, somebody actually getting in there and finishing it. Uh, it's funny. Sometimes that stuff was just overlooked. Well, one of the things that, I, that I've that i taken away in the, in the short time that this league's been around is and having been in the media space for some time on a professional level. Uh, I was I thought one of the, the, the well thought out things, or at least it came across on the screen, uh, was the uh, sort of unified graphics, regardless of where it was being broadcast. Uh, it almost felt like it was uh, well produced in that regard, right? The, the, everything was consistent. Uh, there seemed to be some level of consistency to the actual television schedule, although it seems some of the pieces didn't come together till the kind of the last minute. But I, you have to give them some some credit for, uh, I think, the television production 
looked really good. I mean, it was some of those cameras and stuff, pretty complicated stuff. It did seem, I mean, maybe that's because that's the reality producer in, in, in Charlie Ebersol coming out. I don't know. It, no, it 100% looked right. It, it, it felt right and it looked right. And I think that was the biggest thing that they had going for them. That was the biggest thing that, uh, you know, for Charlie going in is, you know, this had to look the right way. It had to feel like professional football. And so I think that, that you know, their biggest fear was always the, the football. I mean, they closed off training camps to journalists. Um, they wouldn't let anybody see the on-field product until the launch because the reality was that they were terrified, you know, whether this would look bad, whether it would look like bad football. And, you know, lo and behold, that first night on CBS, you know, it, it felt like you were watching, you know, regular primetime football game. And, and you know, it was funny. I talked to um, I talked to somebody um, who was working in one of their executive offices there that said that, you know, after seeing that, um, you know, they cried. They they cried throughout most of the that first action that they saw because it was like, okay, we're saved. This is fine. As long as our biggest fear was the, the football not being right. And, uh, and now that we have that and it looks right and it feels right, we're saved. You know, we're going to be good for the next three years. And the football did seem to look right. Now, I have a, a, a decent understanding of the pro game. I've followed it since being a kid. I, you know, clearly I knew I was not looking at sort of NFL caliber play. And yeah, you could clearly see the rust, especially in the first couple of weeks in terms of the quality of play. But it certainly wasn't as embarrassing as the the original XFL was in 2001, which I think everybody would uh, agree was farcical and uh, and underwhelming. And I think actually one of the germs of uh, of Charlie's uh, idea of of doing it right, so to speak, uh, inclusive of the on field performance, which I think the original XFL didn't have really going for it in, in its certainly first few weeks. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I 100% agree with that. And not only did it look good, but there were some fun ideas. I mean, and there were smart ideas, right? You had the sky judge. Um, you were in the booth with the referee as he was talking through the call. I mean, that's the kind of transparency that the NFL runs away from at every angle, but that their fans crave. is just, okay, you know, we understand that maybe not every call is going our way, but walk us through it. Don't make Mike Pereira do it. I want to hear the actual official reason with it. You know, they had mic'd up the coaches, and so... You know, you'd catch all these funny moments where, like, you know, Steve Spurrier was saying, well, if I'm going to throw it to him again, he better catch it or else I'm going to bench him. And, you know, it's just, it's funny. It's good football. It's, it's why we watch all this NFL film stuff in the off season once it's edited by the teams and stuff like that for a taste of what goes on on the sidelines. And they had, you know, other fun ideas like, you know, the onside kick um, rule where, you know, you could either opt for an onside kick or you could go for it. Um, and it would be a fourth and 15 on your own 25-yard line. I mean, that made it to owners' meetings. That made it to a vote um, with the NFL. And so a lot of this stuff was like, okay, not only are we putting together a fairly decent broadcast with some good players, but we're also like, you know, kind of nipping at the NFL's heels a little bit. Hey, here are some things that your fans want. They want all this stuff, and we're, ju- we're just going to pump it straight into their veins. All right, I want to come back to the NFL thing for a second because it's it's really a, a spur that I, is obviously a, another layer of this this story. But a lot of your article, the first one in particular, again frames a lot of the I don't know the valuation and or the innovation uh, coming from the tech and uh, almost as a petri dish, if you will, for gambling uh, with mobile technology and data and all that kind of stuff, using essentially or effectively live football kind of as the the grease or the the oil, if you will, of of the engine. Um, but it's ironic because here we are talking about how 
you know, great the presentation on screen and the quality of play, not as bad as people might have feared. Uh, those seem to be going well for the league. Yet, ironically, it seems like the tech stuff was actually kind of behind the curve, which ironically was kind of what one of the original propositions of investing in this league in the first place. Um, you know, it, it's funny because it, it depends on who you talk to. Um, and, you know, I got the chance to speak to a few engineers, um, uh, you know, some people who really kind of understood this from an intrinsic level. And it depends on who you talk to. Either, you know, there are some people even now that fully believe that in less than two years, you know, this team of people that work together on the alliance will be leading innovators in the sports world somewhere. And it'll be kind of a funny footnote in their history. Um, and then there are people that say that this was awful. I mean, it was, we couldn't, we don't understand why they were making this money or what they were doing. And so I think it speaks to that divide a little bit. Um, but also, um, it, you know, what, one of the interesting things that I learned from the reporting in this, and that's something that, you know, I kind of want to expand on in some later articles, is that the NFL uh, you know, part of the reason that they were interested here is because they they can't be flexible. It's such a behemoth. They're, you know, they were described to me sort of as like IBM in the 80s, where they were so big that they can't they can't deter from what they do, right? They they can't be agile and take chances. And so this was the alliance. Uh, you know, this is where they were going to come into play. Is okay. I mean, you know, did you ever experiment with these kind of headsets? Did you ever experiment with? you know, fiber optic cables running around here and, you know, here's how we can correct your data. Here's a better way to read uh, the GPS chips in the shoulder pads. We're going to experiment with all this stuff, GPS in the, in the footballs, $700 footballs. And so, you know, that was the appeal, I think, to the NFL was, you know, okay, it's not our money. We're not spending it. And then if anything's good, we'll just either buy it from them or we'll make our own version of it and, uh, and license the technology. And so I think that that was where um, the NFL was like, okay, I mean, if these guys are pledging themselves as a tech company, let's let them make all the mistakes and see what happens. Yeah, it's classic corporate uh, approach to innovation and stuff, right? Where, you know, things, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's classic straight out of business school 201 uh, for, you know, how to, how to buy, if you will, or acquire innovation when it gets a little too close for comfort. But Larry, let me talk, let me ask you then about the NFL more squarely. What was the official and maybe unofficial uh, feeling of the NFL uh, towards this league? Because it does seem to me that, and I don't know if it was a smokescreen or, uh, you know, some other, you know, uh, a faint of concept to sort of distract from the other issues at hand. But it does seem to me that there was some level of expectation amongst some in the organization that there would be or was uh, either implicitly or down the road or whatever, some kind of uh, uh, desired relationship in some way, shape or form, maybe, you know, to come over time with the NFL. But that strikes me as being a little naive, given that it's, for example, CBS, right, broadcasting the very first game. You know, they're a rights holder, a major rights holder to the NFL. I, I, how much of that is? With the NFL's knowledge and blessings, so to speak, and, and how much of it is not, uh, it's a long-winded way of saying, what is the NFL relationship here, if there was any, uh, or misplaced expectations? I would say that the door, the back door was open, right? And so what I mean by that is, you know, remember, some of these games were broadcast on NFL Network with NFL 
um, uh, talent and personalities that were un- that are still actively under NFL contracts. Um, you know, whether it was Steve Mariucci or Andrew Siciliano or you know all their horde of of NFL Network talent and broadcasters and all that stuff. So I think that there is absolutely an interest um, in a developmental league um, in some respect, but they just don't want to pay for it. They don't want to lend their credence to something that's going to sink because then it hurts the brand. And so they've basically let all these companies just come out and fight each other tooth and nail um, to see who survives. And so I think that that's what we're seeing right now. And so the NFL, you know, uh, you know, a source in the league to describe to me is always interested. I mean, just uh, curious, um, keeping an eye on it. Uh, having it through a microscope and and picking it apart, and so I, I don't think that there was ever an adversarial thing. I do think, though, you're right. There was more of an expectation that, especially when Tom Dundon came aboard, that one day, um, not only were they going to be using third, fourth string NFL players on their roster, but that the NFL would actually pay for it. You know, they would pay for those salaries. Um, because they would pay for the time and the, and the coaching and the instruction um, while none of this other stuff was going on, none of their camps were going on. So when Dundon was sort of uh, uh, sought after as sort of the uh, the, the last-minute sort of uh, infuser-slash-savior uh, in, the, in the, the wobbly last weeks, now in the press is one thing and maybe behind the scenes is another. Maybe you have some insight into this. But, you know, w- was his expectation – I mean, it sounded like, based on what I've read, Right. And some of your reporting that that there was this in his mind expectation of a some kind of of actual commitment of the NFL to, to do some of what you just said. And it didn't seem like it was going to happen anytime soon, if ever. Yeah. So this is me speculating, because, again, you know, you know, as we said at the end of that article, Reggie, um, Tom and, and Charlie all um, declined to speak with us, uh, you know, for this. But, you know, we were able to kind of talk to people in their orbit and people who understand um, you know, how their minds work. And, and the sense that I got, um, you know, and, it, you know, so I guess, forgive me, I'm going to speculate a little bit, is that, you know, we described their initial partnership as sort of a shotgun wedding. I mean, this thing happened over the phone. The deal was done in less than 24 hours. Um, and at least what it sounded like to me was that two very different people, Charlie and Tom, um, getting together and trying to hammer this out. And, you know, maybe some of the things that were promised orally um, beca- it became very clear that they were not going to happen very quickly. And so if you're a bottom line business guy like Tom Dundon, who comes from, you know, the subprime auto loans world, um, you know, you're not going to sit around and, you know, watch all these unfulfilled promises stack up um, and uh, and keep pouring money into nothing, you know, and and I think that in his mind, at least from what it sounded like to me, was that seventy million was the number. Um, and then once he got to that, it was okay. If I don't see what I want here, I'm done. And uh, and he held firm to that promise. Yeah, and Dundon though strikes me as the antithesis of you know the sort of tech-oriented type investor who you know has some level of patience and, and recognizes a significant amount of money needs to be put into stuff. It sounds to me almost like now that that's not not to deny his success elsewhere, right? Uh, pr- previous to getting to you know where he is now and as a sports uh, as a sports owner extraordinaire in other places, I it, I get the sense though that he he was like well Charlie might have thought about it as tech plus football, 
Dundon was almost like football and football, right? I mean, it sounds like he, Dundon was the guy trying to sort of figure out what the TV situation was, right? And I, in your writing, I, I, it almost feels to me, I'm sure he's not naive, right? Maybe he was surprised to find out that the league was paying for its for its airtime versus being paid for it or or the idea of the NFL actually, you know, stepping up and, and being a quote unquote partner of sorts beyond just uh, being on the NFL network. I, I don't know. It almost seems like that was like the first and foremost thing that Dunham was going to do was basically get agreements and or whatever from the football people. And it didn't seem like that was going to come anytime on his timetable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a fair way to put it. You know, from what it seemed like to me, it was, um, you know, well, I'm going to I'm going to fact check everything here. So you say that we have a harmonious relationship with the NFLPA. Well, I'm going to lead the next call, and I'm going to ask them, uh, not okay. Well, in the future, or this sounds good. Five years from now, what are you going to do next week? The week after that, and by the end of the season, can we have a deal? And you know, I think that that was alarming to people in the alliance because they're like, we're still a startup. We're just trying to become part of this ecosystem. And Tom is like, nope, this is my money. I need to know if this is going to happen now. And I think the same thing happened with the TV deals, where you know Charlie is obviously from that television side, and he's saying, well, everything's great. You know, in two years or three years, things are going to look this way. And you know, to Tom's credit, I mean, you know, I said, you know, I talked to one television executive who said, yeah, he called me and he asked for my opinion. He asked, uh, you know, how long until we're going to make money on this? And, and what do you think of our property? And so, you know, I think it's really interesting to see how that worked out where it was almost like on the fly, he was trying to figure out if, if this was a good idea or not. But, but it also seems to me that now, again, it, we'll see how the story plays out further. There's a lot more yet to come. And then obviously the looking back in terms of the, how the story played out. But, you know, I, I could, having done enough investigation of teams and leagues in, in, in various circumstances over the, you know, over the decades in this stupid little show, I can pretty much with confidence sort of uh, say that you almost wonder if you could have stuck it out for the rest of the year, right? The rest of the season, not too far, far to go, right? They obviously, you know, downsized the, the championship game. They were going to move it to that, uh, Frisco, Texas, uh, Dallas Cowboys facility. You know, they were going to be on, on CBS again, that next very, you know, those days after uh, the league collapsed. In my mind, any leverage you could have had, right, kind of goes by the wayside by trying to accelerate it in the middle or near the end of the season, right? If, if you can kind of limp along and, and get, you know, get that extra TV exposure, at least you'll have a full season under your belt to then, you know, vet and then, you know, make the decision that perhaps, you know, you double down or you do things a little differently. I mean, it just it, it seems, again, from an outsider's perspective, unreasonable. Again, it's not my money. Right. To expect things to happen that quickly in the midst of the heat of the moment of the season, uh, despite the, uh, shall we say, desperation, you know, and, and somebody wanting to call his own shots because he's the one injecting the cash into the enterprise. Yeah, so, so I would say two things to that. The first is uh, I I agree, and that's why Tom I think was such a bad choice. And you know what's funny is you talk to, you know, all these people that are left, um, you know, who are looking for jobs and stuff now, and you know they're all saying, you know, we we tried to tell Charlie like ask these other people, you know, there are millionaires and billionaires in our home cities who love this team and who love this league and who want to own 
a franchise like you know and 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 they see the vision and i think that that was what was particularly frustrating to a lot of people around them is that whatever happened you know or we know what happened now with reggie and the urgency there just created this sort of frantic shotgun wedding when in reality you probably had some momentum after that first week of the season um to to kind of pair off and to say okay you know Let's get an investor from Salt Lake. Let's get an investor from San Antonio. Let's get an investor from Orlando. There's enough millionaires uh, or, you know, multimillionaires in these cities that the guys can hop on and, and really develop like a nice little uh, coffer here of, of money. But um, I guess to play devil's advocate um, from Dundon's perspective, you know, you're probably looking at, uh, you know, one of the th- your, your salaries get bigger in year two, right? Because, you know, if, you, if you're in your second year as a player, you have a built-in raise. And then you're also looking at it as, okay, well, the XFL is not going away, and so they're going to be up against us head-to-head. You know, um, what are our TV deals looking like for year two? I mean, I know I'm going to have to pay, but am I going to have to pay more? Um, am I going to have to get into a bidding war with Vince McMahon over primetime television slots for, for these games? And so I think that, you know, for the cautious investor, it's like, okay, you know, I already – threw away $70 million, why would I throw away $170 million? Yeah, sort of the sunk investment sort of theory. It's like, why why, why mm-hmm. pay more for... Yeah, I, I, again, I'm sure across the lens of, of time, right, this is our this is a first a rough draft, I guess, of, of the, the history of this story. All right, a couple of quick things to wrap up, and I, this has been great. I appreciate it. So number one, in the immediate term, what's what's happening in the ashes of of this league in terms of it's clear. I mean, chapter seven, obviously they the leagues even saying don't bother, you know, registering as a creditor because we have no money to pay, but it's clear that there are a lot of people and frankly, a lot of people not talking for various reasons that want to sort of see their legal options sort of play out. What, what do you think is going to play out in terms of uh, the ashes of this league, the people and the, and the legalities of it? Yeah, I think that we, there will be lawsuits and, you know, there's already a few and I've talked to several people who are planning on filing, whether it's, you know, disgruntled former employees and rightfully disgruntled former employees or players or, you know, whether they're going to join a class action or anything like that. Um, you know, I think that the bankruptcy proceedings are, are going on. We'll see all this brand new equipment that the Alliance bought auctioned off, um, you know, to try to um, recover some of this money and maybe start paying back some of the the millions of dollars that they owe people. Um, but I'll tell you what, I mean, this, this kind of speaks to, I, I actually found this out the other day after we published our second story. There are still salespeople and advertising people and marketing people who are in new jobs that are taking phone calls from small businesses wondering where their money is and trying to help them. Um, these are people that don't work for the Alliance anymore, that were fired over text message or email, that are still communicating with these people and, you know, listening to their problems and trying to help them find a solution. And, you know, it's it's totally amazing to me that I think that, that that's still going on. Well, it speaks to the the passion and the belief that, that, that certain people had of the organization and maybe, you know, uh, potentially continues to live on elsewhere. So, all right, let me ask you the second question then. What do you think, based on what you've been able to determine uh, from your reporting, as well as uh, what we've all been sort of seeing with the XFL, which seems to have gotten a little bit more mature, and a little bit more stable, and Oliver Luck, you know, kind of saying the right things and, you know, maybe keeping Vince sort of in check and not repeating the disastrous follies of, of the past, uh, despite using the same name, which is a curious eyebrow raiser. What, what do you think uh, the XFL's chances are and or 
you know, relative to what the, the AAF experienced uh, going into next season. I think they'll at least make it to their championship game. Think so. uh, unlike the, uh, I, no, I, I do. I think, I think, I think we're going to definitely see a season two of the XFL um, for a couple reasons. Uh, the first is that the funding is indefinite, and this is this is a second round of a passion project for for Vince. I mean, he's not going to to bow out at this point, and the, there's still an appetite for live sports, right? There's still a desire. Um, because it's really one of the only things uh, that's left for a lot of these television behemoths is to get live sports and, and, and live properties on television. So there's still a mutual flirtation there. The XFL did a good job, I think, on their, on their TV deals where they're not paying, but they're not making any money, um, you know, sort of a mutual, um, you know, sort of a back rub deal. Um, so I think that their TV deals were smart. Um, I think that uh, some of the coaches that they've hired are good. Um, you're going to get the same level of talent, I think, or a similar level of talent um, personnel-wise. And, you know, that's that's what you need. I mean, and, and if anything else comes into play later on, the app, the gambling, any of that kind of stuff, that's great. But I think in the interim they've proven that, you know, even at the lowest, the Alliance ratings were similar to, you know, major market college basketball games or regular season hockey games. And so I think that there's a there's a, certainly an appetite for that somewhere. Do you think uh, there'll be any blacklisting of AAF uh, participants uh, when it comes to the XFL? Or um, I don't think so. You know, I think whatever happens, because that's another part of the you know uh, bankruptcy proceedings. I mean, obviously they had to free these players um, from their contracts to play in the NFL. Um, you know, and so we'll see what kind of happens um, from from that standpoint there. But I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that there's certainly an understanding. Um, from the alliances side, that like we can't handle any more bad public relations, and so if they want anything at this point, they can take it. You know, shoot, if they want the equipment, they can have it. I mean, you know, I think that at this point, there are so many people there that just want this to be forgotten that they're going to be willing to uh, to kind of make that happen at any cost. Well, and, that, and here's the irony, right? I mean, the XFL coming back. I mean, talk about something that lots of people, and probably to a certain extent, Vince too. Would love to see forgotten too. I mean, you know, in the, in the age of YouTube, I mean, the, the 2001 season is all there for you to watch, right? On all the networks. I mean, I mean, it was it was a spectacle, and then some, and not necessarily in the most uh, positive uh, positive ways, right? I just uh, it, it it boggles the mind, but it's also the the audacity continues, right? I mean, juxtapose the AAF markets versus the XFL markets. I mean, we're talking New York and Seattle and Houston. I mean, these are not and the big stadiums in those places, right? So. I don't, I don't know how more modest he is this time around. I mean, maybe the, the bravado is a little less and the, the operations are, are a bit more, you know, uh, transparent and uh, and methodical. But, man, it's, uh, you know, 10,000, 20,000 people in, you know, a, a MetLife stadium is not necessarily going to be the best uh, TV product, even though they've got good TV deals. Yeah, that is certainly something that was brought up to me. I mean, you know, just the optics of... 9,000 people in a frozen, you know, February MetLife Stadium. I mean, that's going to get pretty bleak, you know. Um, uh, you know, but the only thing that I keep coming back to is there must be um, some pot at the end of the rainbow here. There must be some some treasure buried somewhere if if you can stick on as a um, off-season football league or eventually glob on as a developmental football league because if not, like like you said, I mean, why would you keep trying? 
why would you keep going through all this effort and embarrassment and, and and bad PR? I mean, just, you know, the, the backlash that the Alliance received, um, was devastating to people's careers. And I think that, you know, a lot of things that people might not recover from. And so if you're Vince McMahon and you're taking this risk after seeing what can happen in the social media age, there must be some payoff to this. There must be, um, uh, and, and that's what keeps everybody coming back and keeps everybody trying. All right, last question, and then I'll let you promote. What do you have in your hopper in terms of taking this story further? Uh, you've got some really good articles in SI. I'll let you sort of describe uh, the, the titles of those where people can find it. Uh, you've got your, your podcast and the, and the column that you, uh, you do for SI. Do you see uh, more of a story coming here? And, and if so, in what forms and fashions? Is it more articles? Is it... Uh, is there a documentary in here somewhere? Is there a dog, a dog, a, bu- a book in there? I was going to say pony in there somewhere. Uh, <laughs> what what other ways does this story do you think have to play out? And and do you think you're going to be part of telling that story? Um, you know, I would lo- I would love to be lucky enough to uh, to be considered for any of that. I mean, you know, I'm uh, I'm thrilled to come on and, and and just talk about it now. I mean, the fact that um, uh, you know, I'm I'm just grateful that a lot of people in in the league uh, kind of you know opened up and, and were willing to let me tell their stories uh, in, in the wake of something that was really terrible and, and life-changing for them. And so, you know, however that plays out, you know, I'm sure there's going to be interest, you know, uh, you know, in just doing rounds of reporting for, for this. You know, I, I came across a lot of people who talked to other reporters, and so I'm sure we'll see other stories and, you know, I'm sure feature pieces and video and, and all that kind of stuff. So, I, you know, I don't think this is done – by any stretch of the imagination, just because, you know, like we've said, uh, you know, the full breadth of this hasn't been realized. I mean, you know, Reggie Fowler still has to go to trial for bank fraud. And, you know, there's a there's a cryptocurrency element to that, um, that, you know, a lot of people in that industry are kind of buzzing about. And, um, you know, we've yet to see where all these players land. We've yet to see where all these executives land. We've yet to see, um, you know, any of this, um, you know, how the bankruptcy uh, plays out, whether or not these people are going to get any of their money back at all these small businesses. And so I think that there's a million stories to be told. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people who do want their uh, their voices heard. So I think it's been good to uh, and encouraging to see a lot of people reporting on this and, and just kind of lending uh, – um, lending a soapbox to some of these small businesses and some of these people that, um, you know, kind of weren't mentioned, I think, in the initial round of reporting. Well, if you're listening to this and it's the first time you're hearing of of, of uh, Connor Orr and or this, uh, this story, right, the two seminal articles that you want to read uh, are both uh, from Sports Illustrated, uh, SI.com, or maybe a printed version if you can find one of those. They, do, they still do print magazines, by the way. <laughs> the Curious Rise and Spectacular Crash of the Alliance of American Football – and more strange tales from the collapse of the AAF, and I'm sure more to come. Uh, where else can people follow you and or listen to you, uh, you know, Twitter, uh, your podcast stuff? Where else can they find you and uh, keep abreast of the story that, uh, to the extent that you continue to uh, to pursue it? Oh, yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so my Twitter is just my name, uh, at Connor Orr, C-O-N-O-R, and my last name is Orr, O-R-R, um, one word. Uh, and yeah, we do um, once a week. We tape the Monday morning uh, quarterback podcast with Albert Breer and uh, Jenny Ventus um, at Sports Illustrated, and so you can find all of our podcasts in the MMQB podcast feed. And you know, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's never been a better time to subscribe to the uh, to the print magazine. Keep print alive. We got great deals. Um, 
that you can check out for print subscriptions at SI.com. I'd encourage people to uh, to pick it up. You could get basically um, you know a year's worth of magazines for what you would pay at Barnes and Noble just for the uh, Alliance issue. So. Uh, so I would definitely encourage people to uh, to check it out. And as and as a former summer intern back in 1987 uh, uh, at Sports <laughs> Illustrated myself, and uh, I'm sure the parent company of Meredith Corporation, at least until they sell, t- until they sell the damn thing, would be very uh, very happy that uh, you're uh, you're uh, you're pitching and uh, and marketing this uh, to the full extent that uh, you just have. Um, I thank you tremendously for for making time. And again, like I said, I think this is. You know, it's our first little brush on this. And, and, and frankly, you know, as they say, you know, journalists are sort of the, uh, you know, the first uh, uh, the first take on, on on history. Right. And arguably, that's what you're you're writing, whether you believe it or not. Right. Is, is this is a a story that will continue to play out. Uh, the idea of challenger football leagues will continue to play out to be continued next year with the XFL and and, uh, you know, many more wrinkles, I think, to come. And hopefully it's uh, a cottage industry for you in particular. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, like I said, it was just, uh, it was a, you know, really appreciative of of everybody that did reach out, um, you know, uh, especially during a tough time in their lives. And so, you know, in that sense, it was, you know, privileged to be able to kind of uh, lend them some closure and to kind of help them sort um, some stuff out. But uh, yeah, I I really appreciate you having me on. It was, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun talking about this. I mean, obviously, like you said, uh, it's, this, this is, uh, this is, going to be part of the football culture and part of the football um i don't know zeitgeist or whatever you want to say for years to come and so it was uh definitely one of the more fascinating things i got the chance to work on well i yeah i hinted at the beginning of the show and, and even during uh, the uh, the interview uh that uh, we are just scratching the surface on this topic uh, the aaf is uh you know, not even out of uh, bankruptcy court. There's plenty of uh, lawsuits yet to come. I think a lot of uh, primary uh, participants in this story who have yet to really even say anything yet, uh, probably for legal reasons. Uh, there's a lot more that's uh, going to come out of all this. And uh, we're, we're suspecting that uh, Connor uh, will be uh, front and uh, center for uh, a lot of those stories as they uh, as they trickle out. We encourage you uh, while you wait for uh, more stories to come out to make sure that you uh, inhale these two great articles that uh, that he wrote over the last couple of weeks at Sports Illustrated's uh, website at si.com. It's uh, both articles by Connor Orr. One's called The Curious Rise and Spectacular Crash of the Alliance of American Football. And the follow-up piece is called More Strange Tales from the Collapse of the AAF. And uh, I'm certain uh, that many more uh, writings are yet to come. Uh, and you can follow Connor on Twitter at uh, Connor Orr. So that's C-O-N-O-R-O-R-R. That's all one word. Connor Orr, at Connor Orr. That's C-O-N-O-R-O-R-R. And you can find him, obviously, on the uh, Monday morning quarterback section uh, of Sports Illustrated, uh, the podcast th- th- that's there, uh, and all kinds of other stuff that uh, Connor's writing uh, at SI.com. Check him out early and often. Give him a follow on Twitter. And I am certain that we'll uh, hear more from Mr. Orr in the uh, weeks and months to come on this topic, as well as anything related to football. Uh, God forbid the XFL. I suspect that that's probably going to be on his docket, too. Uh, and uh, we look forward to staying in touch with him. And uh, obviously, when major warrants, uh, excuse me, major events warrant, yes, he says, on this uh, topic and more, uh, we will uh, hopefully uh, get reconnected and uh, have Connor Orr back on the show. We thank him for being part of this week's show. 
Uh, we also thank you for listening, of course, to this week's show. By all means, you want to keep up uh, with what's going on on this little program. Uh, by all means, uh, bookmark GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's where you're going to find out all of what's going on with our little doings here. You're going to find all of our episodes, dozens and dozens now, uh, since, I don't know, geez, uh, mid uh, early part of 2017. Jeez, it just seems like yesterday. Uh, but all the old episodes are there for you. You can download them and share them and do whatever you want. Uh, subscribe wherever you get podcasts. So make sure you don't miss an episode that uh, we have. We, we publish every week, for God's sakes. And of course, you can follow us on social media. Uh, on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. On Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. You will find us also, for whatever reasons, on Facebook. There's a page devoted to us there. You can send us email at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And you can also subscribe to our our little email newsletter that we send out uh, each and every weekend to give you a head start on what uh, our episode is going to be for that following week. And you'll find a link to that on our website uh, as well. Lots of fun, cool stuff. You want to buy stuff or books uh, or uh, other media that we feature or other cool T-shirts and some of our great sponsors, all that stuff. You'll find it at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. By all means, check us out and uh, keep doing so, will you? And uh, by all means, too, check out our friends at Podfly Productions. Uh, those are the good folks that put our collective pieces together. And in particular, our good friend, the good doctor, Jerry Payne, our chief cook and bottle washer who puts all of our pieces together. We appreciate his efforts each and every week for doing so. And you want to find out more about Podfly, by all means, check them out at their website at podfly.net. All right, we are done for another week. We appreciate your listening. Until uh, next time, next week, uh, the ticket window is now, sadly, closed. Take care, everybody. Take care.